Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime and Paranormal Podcast. This is the reading of the Darley Routier Trial Testimony, Part 10. Now we are continuing with Day 5 of the trial, which occurred on January 10th, 1997. On this particular day, there were eight witnesses in total, so it was quite a lot of testimony. In episode number 60, we heard first the defense motion for mistrial, which was denied. We then heard from Denise Falk, who was another nurse who attended to Darley in the ICU. And then it was Thomas Dean Ward, a peace officer with the city of Rowlett. And lastly, the testimony of Gustavo Guzman Jr., who was at the time 18 years old and who, on the morning of the crime, found strange items in his backyard not far from the Routier home. But before we get into this new episode, let's quickly review some of the information we learned in the last episode. So let's talk about Denise Falk, the nurse. She said that she had asked Darley what Darley could remember as Darley is lying there in the hospital. And Denise made a point of mentioning while she was on the stand that uh, Darley and the boys were downstairs asleep. Okay, this wasn't anything unusual, but said that they were in front of the big screen TV. And she really made mention of this big screen TV, almost as if drawing attention to the Routier's possessions. Uh, Denise said that Darley had told her that the man had ran into the kitchen and hit the wine rack, which made a crack sound. She also asked Darley about the knife and how Darley knew that it had come from her kitchen. Uh, Darley said that it was because the handle was white. I felt it was really odd, personally, that the nurse was questioning Darley about the knife, period. So many theories run through my head on this one. Uh, Did someone ask the nurse to try and pry some information from Darley? It is a really odd question that a nurse would ask. Nurse Falk also said that while Darren was doing CPR, and this is at the time of the the incident, according to Darley, Darren kept saying, hang in there, babies, hang in there. But in previous testimonies and which are all backed up by the actual 911 call itself, this was something that Darley had said while she was on the phone with 911, not Darren. So, you know, just playing devil's advocate or whatever, is the prosecution trying to confuse the jury? The nurse noticed that as Darley was recounting all of this information after she's sitting there asking her these questions, that Darley's heart rate increased uh, because obviously she's still hooked up to the monitors. And again, why would a nurse be interested in her reactions to a story. Uh, Something's up here. There is constant questioning about how emotional Darley was, always referring to the fact that she wasn't streaming tears down her face, but she appeared tearful or quote in Denise Falk's case, she said her eyes would get wet and so forth. 
Now, she was questioned about this, that, you know, hey, did anybody ask you to ask Darlie these questions? And she's like, no, you know, she, I didn't do this at anyone's request. So why would she do this? You know, to me, it seemed really weird. She took these notes and she had took these notes like a week after she had, or the weekend after she had spoken with Darlie and put them in a safe spot in her apartment. And again, why? She then turned these over to the prosecution when they asked for them after they had found out about them. So the conspiracy theorist in me (laughs) thinks that the prosecution put Nurse Falk up to this because this is really odd behavior for someone who is supposed to be taking care of Darlie, not someone who is supposed to be a pseudo investigator. When I was first reading through this, though, I thought, oh, she just went home and jotted down some information. But these weren't just little tiny notes that she had jotted down on a scrap of paper. These were three pages of notes. And Denise then mentioned, again, Nurse Falk, that Darley whined. And this is very similar to the same term that another nurse had used earlier. To me, it sounds derogatory. I don't know, you might have a different thought process on this, but just to me, it just sounds bad. So let's move on to Sergeant Ward. He was the next one after Denise Falk. Now, Sergeant Ward mentions that he assigned two officers to go to the alley behind the Routier home. He gave his testimony about he, how he and another officer walked through the neighborhood and they began to search up and down the alley behind the Routier home. And at this time, it was still dark. It was around 4.30 in the morning and they had to use flashlights. Now, a few houses down at 5709 Eagle Drive, um, outside near the trash can, a white athletic tube sock was found, and on this sock, there was what appeared to be blood. The trash can that the sock was nearby was full of grass clippings, and Sergeant Ward said that they didn't find any other socks or shoes or blood inside this garbage can. However, they also didn't say whether or not they had dug through the garbage can or dumped it out or how exactly they had checked for these items, you know, the socks, the shoes, or even blood within these grass clippings. Next to this garbage can was also a storm sewer that had a manhole cover on top of it. Now, evidently, uh, this manhole cover uh, was locked, and I guess that was very typical. So the police weren't actually able to crawl inside, uh, but Sergeant Ward had said that he had taken his flashlight and looked down the drain, and that it, meaning the sewer, went off at a weird angle. But he shined his flashlight down there. He didn't see any blood. He didn't see another sock. He didn't see any shoes. So if that sewer went off at an odd angle, could he see around this angle? And if not, why wasn't it checked further? You know, I have so many questions about this. After it was even daylight outside, they again did a search of the alley, but they never mentioned if they also went back to the sewer to check it again when it was light outside. Now, remember 5709, this is where they found the sock and it was near that trash can um, that was also near that storm sewer. 
The yard where they found these knives when Gustavo Guzman testified uh, was at 5706 Willowbrook Drive, and this was in Gustavo's backyard. And if you remember from the last episode, these houses, the backyards kind of back up to one another, but instead of backing up, you know, literally back to back, there's a driveway or an alley uh, that runs between them. And this is actually where all of the garages are, so where they would keep their cars. So that kind of helps put it into a little bit of perspective. So as far as these knives go that were in Gustavo's backyard, uh, the officer said that the mud that was on the handles was fresh. So this meant that it was recent or it was wet. He said it appeared to be moist looking, but how could that be? They had been doing gardening, him and his mom and, and family, about a week before, which would mean that the knives were out in the elements for a week. Why would they still have fresh mud on them? Now, they could have a whole bunch of mud. Maybe they ran sprinklers in the backyard and somehow or the dried mud that was on there got wet. When I went back and I looked at the weather during this particular week at that particular time, Nothing had happened. There was no rain, nothing. So if they were in the yard, they were using these knives, digging in the dirt, kept them in the backyard. They'd been out there for a week. Any mud that would have been on those knives would have been 100% dried unless, again, sprinklers were run in the yard um, and which made the mud wet. However, you know, if sprinklers are run, wouldn't it eventually over the week just kind of rinse them off? So there's a lot of questions that I have there. The officer also said that immediately he discounted these knives as being related to the case. Now, one of the knives was lying flat on the ground and the other one was sticking into the ground with the handle still up in the air. He also said that the gate into the Gustavo's backyard was closed and was locked. But according to Gustavo, when he got back home very early in the morning or late at night, however you want to look at it, the gate was unlocked and open. So anyhow, Sergeant Ward said that he was 100% positive that the knives had not been used in the crime due to where they were, what they were next to, uh, the edging the work that was being done, etc. And he couldn't see any blood on the knives. But the defense then asked him how far away the knives were from where he was. And he said it was about five or six feet. And he was still absolutely certain that there was not any blood on the knives. However, we know that the knives were covered in mud, right? So how could he possibly know that? Plus, if a knife is laying on the ground, for example, all he can see is one side. He can't see the other side of the knife, so how can he be 100% sure? He just left them where they were. So the police officers did eventually go and get the knives from the Guzman home, but, you know, this was a month before the trial. In other words, this was sometime in December. The crime happened in June. And by that time, the knives had been picked up and they had been washed. And when they showed up, when the police showed up at Gustavo's home, he was absolutely certain that he knew exactly which knives the police were looking for. 
even though they'd been washed and put back in a kitchen drawer. So I really don't know why the police were all of a sudden going there to his house and grabbing these knives because obviously, you know, if anything, if it was related at all, any kind of evidence would have been completely gone by this time. But, you know, maybe this is something we're going to find out in a later episode. So before, lastly, before we get into the this episode, some have asked in the comments section about when Darley testifies. Now, Darley doesn't take the stand until January 29th of 1997. And this is literally just shortly before closing statements from both sides. And this series is going in order of testimony. So hers is actually going to be a little while yet. But you might also be interested to know that just a couple of days before Darley testifies, Darren gets on the stand. So that should be interesting as well. And one last thing that I want to bring up in this podcast, the last person that you're going to hear from that testifies is Jack Colby. And he was the paramedic that was the first on the scene and tended to Damon. Now, his testimony can be quite intense. So I just wanted to give you a quick heads up before you get to that section. Now, let's get on with the first person to testify on this day of testimony. And of course, we're still in the same day, um, just finishing up the rest of the witnesses. And the first one to testify in this episode is Officer Steve Wade. Now, Officer Steve Wade is a patrolman who stood watch at the front door of the Routier home on the morning of June the 6th. And he testified for the state or for the prosecution. And his testimony begins uh, with a direct examination by Mr. Greg Davis. Please tell us your full name. Stephen Robert Wade, W-A-D-E. Are you a Rowlett police officer? Yes, sir, I am. How long have you been with the Rowlett Police Department? Approximately two years. Okay. And what's your position with them? I work in the patrol division. All right, Officer Wade. Let me direct your attention back to June 6, 1996. Were you on duty that day? Yes, sir. Do you remember what your hours to work were? I was scheduled to work from 1.30 p.m. to 10 p.m. All right. Would that have been 1.30 p.m. to 10 p.m. on June the 5th or on the 6th? June 5th. All right. I want to move ahead a little bit here. This is going to be on June the 6th at approximately 3 a.m. And let me ask you whether at that time, you were directed to go to 5801 Eagle Drive. Yes, sir, I was. And did you, in fact, go to the front door of that residence? Yes, sir, I did. And when you did, was there anyone at the front door of 5801 Eagle Drive, sir? Yes, there was. And who was on the door at that time? It was Officer Waddell. Okay, David Waddell? Yes, sir, that's correct. And did you relieve him there at the front door? Yes, sir. And were you instructed to stay at the front door? 
Yes, sir, I was. Let me ask you, what were your instructions regarding entry into that house once you got posted on the front door? I was instructed that no one was to enter that house. Now, let me ask you, do you know about what time you actually got on the front door and relieved the officer Waddell? At approximately 3.15 a.m. on the 6th. And do you recall how long you were on the door? Until approximately 5.57 a.m. on the 6th. So you were there for, what, about two and a half hours, something like that? Approximately, yes, sir. Officer Wade, during the times that you were on that front door, did you let anybody inside that house? No, sir, I did not. During the two and a half hours that you were on the door, did anyone try to get into the house? Yes, sir, they did. All right, would you tell the members of the jury who tried to get into the house? That was my chief of police. It was Chief Posey. Okay, you actually told your chief he couldn't come in? That is correct. Okay, and he didn't go in? No, sir, he did not. Okay, was that the only person that tried to get in? Yes, sir. And at 5.57, did someone else take over the front door from you? Yes, sir. And do you recall the name of the officer that took over the front door from you? Officer Steve Ferry. He's also with the Rowlett Police Department? That's correct. Officer Wade, I want to show you what's been marked as State's Exhibit 34. Do you recognize this photo, sir? Yes, sir, I do. Okay. Is an individual shown here at the front door at 5801 Eagle Drive? Yes, sir. Is that individual you? Yes, sir, it is. Taken on June 6, 1996. Yes, sir. Mr. Greg Davis then says, Your Honor, at this time we'll offer State's Exhibit 34. Mr. Richard Mosty says no objection, and the court then says the State's Exhibit number 34 is admitted. All right, just briefly, we see you standing here at the front door of the residence, is that correct? Yes, sir. And we see some, what is this? Is this yellow tape? Yes, sir, that's crime scene tape. Okay, and that's tape that the police department put up around the residence. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Officer Wade, let me ask you, if you would, to look at this piece of paper that I have had marked for identification purposes as State's Exhibit 34-A. Do you recognize that, sir? I sure do. Is that a note that you made of the times that you spent on the door that day on June 6, 1996? Yes, sir, it is. Okay, besides this one piece of paper, sir, did you make any written reports concerning your activities out there? No, sir, I did not. Okay, I'm talking about either typed or handwritten. Any other notes besides this one piece of paper that has the times? No, sir. And Officer Wade, let me just ask you this. Uh, prior to your testifying today, have I had a chance to meet with you concerning your testimony? We have talked, yes. All right. Did we have a chance to talk while we were still in Dallas? Yes, sir. Do you remember how many times I've met with you to discuss your testimony about what you did? Prior to today? Yes, sir. 
a couple of times. All right. Did you come to a courtroom there in Dallas? Yes, sir. And there were a lot of other Rowlett Police Department officers there. Is that right? Yes, sir. And did I ask you at that time to tell me about the times that you were on the door? Yes, sir, you did. And did I meet with you any other times while we were still in Dallas concerning the times there? No, sir. You came into Rowlett when? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's been a long week. I'm sorry. You came into Kerrville when? Sunday. All right. And since you came into Kerrville, how many times have we talked about the time that you stood there at the door? Just once. And when was that? Today. Okay. Mr. Greg Davis then says, I'll pass the witness. The court then says, Mr. Mosty. And the cross-examination begins by Mr. Richard Mosty. Officer Wade. And then Mr. Mosty says, may I see? Mr. Greg Davis then says, sure, let me tender 34-A to Mr. Mosty at this time. The court then says, okay. Mr. Richard Mosty then continues. What time did you actually arrive at the scene? approximately 313 314 okay so you immediately went to the door yes sir who instructed you to go to the door my sergeant sergeant walling and after 557 yes sir you had no further involvement with this case whatsoever and no sir other than of course going down to downtown dallas that's correct sir when you went down there did you actually go up and get sworn in? No, sir. It was just talking? Mm-hmm. With the other officers present? Yes, sir. Mr. Mosty then says, that's all. Mr. Greg Davis says, no further questions. The court says, thank you very much for coming, officer. Next up to testify on this day is Officer Steve Ferry. And he is one of the officers that searched the area around the Routier home the morning of June the 6th. He was with Sergeant Ward when the sock was found in an alley at the rear of the house. So his test or direct examination begins also by Mr. Greg Davis. Would you please tell us your full name? Stephen Joseph Ferry. F-E-R-R-I-E. -R -R Mr. Ferry, are you a Rowlett police officer? Yes, sir. How long have you been with the Rowlett Police Department, sir? For approximately eight years. All right. Are you a patrolman out there? Yes, sir. Let me ask you, I want to direct your attention to June the 6th of 1996, and I ask you whether or not you were instructed to go to 5801 Eagle Drive. Yes, sir, I was. Do you recall approximately what time that morning that you got to Eagle Drive? It was approximately 4 a.m. All right. And when you got to the residence, did you meet with any other officers out there? Yes, sir. And do you recall who you met with? Yes, sir. I met with Sergeant Ward. Okay, he was a sergeant, correct? Yes, sir. Was he your supervisor? Yes, sir. Did you have occasion after meeting with Sergeant Ward to accompany him down the alley behind Eagle Drive? Yes, sir, I did. 
And did you assist him in the search of that alley for possible evidence? Yes, sir, I did. Did you yourself retrieve any items? No, I did not. All right. Were you with Sergeant Ward when you saw when a white sock was seen next to a garbage container? Yes, sir. Did you have an opportunity also to see that sock? Yes, sir. Was the sock retrieved by you or Sergeant Ward? Sergeant Ward located the sock first. All right. Did you then go over there and look at it? Yes, sir. Did another Rowlett officer then retrieve the sock for evidence? Yes, sir. Do you remember who that was? Yes, sir. Who was that? It was Officer Main. David Main? Yes, sir. All right. Is he with the physical evidence section out there? Yes, he is. Okay. And did you and Sergeant Ward search the entire alley? Yes, we did. Is that the only item that came to your attention during the entire search? Yes, sir. Now, do you know about how long it took for you and Sergeant Ward to search the alley? I would estimate approximately 45 minutes. All right. And after you finished the search, did you leave the location or did you do something else out there at that location? After I assisted in the search of the alley, I was assigned to guard the crime scene at the front door. When you got up to the front door, officer, was there another Rowlett officer already there? Yes, sir, there was. Who was that? Officer Steve Wade. All right, so was it your responsibility then to take his place there at the front door? Yes, sir. And did you do that? Yes, I did. Okay, and what were your instructions when you got to that front door? What were you supposed to do? To prevent anybody from coming inside the residence. All right, and when you got there to the front door, did you start any sort of log or any kind of written record regarding whoever might go in or come out of that house? Yes, sir, I did. Okay, and again, what's the purpose of keeping a log such as that? To keep track of the people who entered the crime scene and when they leave. All right. Mr. Greg Davis then says, may I approach your honor? The court says, you may. Mr. Greg Davis says, Officer Ferry, let me show you what's been marked for identification purposes as States Exhibit 34-B. Do you recognize that document, sir? Yes, I do. All right. Is that the crime log that you began generating at 5.57 a.m. on June 6, 1996? Yes, sir. And the first entries, would those be your entries, sir? Yes, sir. All right. Now, does this log actually show what time that you took over the door from Officer Wade? Yes, sir. And what time did you take it over? 5.57 a.m. Okay. Now, let's talk about the front of the house. Was there an area of the front portion of the house that had been taped off? Yes. All right. And do you recall the first time that anyone entered into the area in front of the house that had been taped off? Yes, sir. And would that be reflected on your log here? Yes, sir. And do you recall at this point what time that was? 
I believe it was 6.03 a.m. And do you recall actually who came inside that taped off area? I have to view the log. Okay. At 6.03 a.m., Sergeant Walling, Sergeant Neighbors, and Officer Main and James Cron entered the taped area. All right. So you had a... So... As I understand then, you had Sergeant Walling. You knew who he was, correct? Yes, sir. Matt Walling? Yes, sir. David Main, you've already told us he was a member of the physical evidence section. Is that correct? That's correct. David Neighbors. Who is David Neighbors? That's Sergeant David Neighbors. He's with the patrol division, also physical evidence. Is he also the supervisor over the physical evidence section? Yes, sir. And you had also made a note that a James Cron entered the taped area. Now, who is James Cron? He is a... I'm not sure exactly what his title is. I know he deals with crime scenes. Okay. He was somebody that you knew, correct? Not personally. It's a name that I had heard in the past... Okay, and then he accompanied Walling, Neighbors, and Maine, the four of them together, then came in the taped-off area, right? Yes, sir. Okay, and are they the first people that actually came in the taped-off area? Yes, sir. Now, at that point, when these four come in the taped-off area, had anybody come inside the house? No, sir. When is the first time that anyone entered 5801 Eagle Drive after you took over the front door? It was 6.09 a.m. All right. And can you tell us the names of the persons who actually went into the house? Yes, sir. It was Karen Neal, David Main, and Sergeant Walling. Okay, so we have David Neighbors. I'm sorry, David Main and Matt Walling, correct? From Rowlett PD? Yes, sir. And Karen Neal, was she a member of the police department or was she a civilian? She was a civilian. Was it your understanding that she was a neighbor? Yes, sir. So they entered the house at 6.09. Is that right? That's correct. Can you tell us how long those three individuals remained in the house? Karen Neal remained in the house for two minutes. Okay, only two minutes? Yes, sir. Okay, so she went in at 6.09. Is that right? That's correct. And she came out at 6.11. Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. How about David Main and Matt Walling? Did they come out at 6.11 or did they remain in the house? They remained in the house. Okay. When is the next time that anyone else actually went into 5801 Eagle Drive? At 6.11, James Cron entered the house and Sergeant Neighbors entered the house. Okay, so at 6.11, we have David Main, correct? Yes, sir. We have Sergeant Matt Walling. Yes, sir. We have Sergeant David Neighbors. Is that right? Yes, sir. And we have James Cron. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, those four individuals are inside the house at 6.11 a.m. on June 6th. Yes, sir. What is the next entry as far as someone going into the house or coming out of the house? 
When did that next occur? At 6.37 a.m. Is that someone going into the house or is that someone coming out of the house? That's someone leaving the house. All right. And who left the house at 6.37? Sergeant Neighbors, Sergeant Walling, and James Cron. Okay. Was it your understanding that they had been doing a walkthrough of the house? Yes, sir. Of the crime scene. So first person in, you got Walling, Maine, and Karen Neal at 6.09, right? Yes, sir. Karen Neal was out at 6.11. Yes, sir. And then you have three police officers and James Cron in there from 6.11 until 6.37 a.m. Is that right? Yes, sir. Do you recall how long that you remained on the door that morning, sir? I was relieved of that duty at 7.15 a.m. Okay, and during the time that you were on that front door, did any other civilians enter into that residence besides James Cron, who went in with the Rowlett Police Department? Yes, sir. Okay, who else went in? Robin Price from the ME's office. Oh, I'm sorry. She entered the taped area. Okay, so she's not actually in the house, right? That's correct. And that's a field agent from the medical examiner's office. Is that right? Yes, sir. So the only civilians that would have been Karen Neal for two minutes and James Cron, right? At 6.59, Robin Price, Mr. Cron, Sergeant Neighbors, and Sergeant Evans entered the house. Okay, so... Now you have police officers, James Cron, the medical examiner's agent now, Sergeant Evans. Is that Sergeant Lamar Evans? Yes, sir. Is he also a supervisor with the Rowlett Police Department? Yes, he is. All right. Now, again, how long did you stay on the front door? Until 7.15 a.m. All right. Now, after 7.15 a.m., did an officer relieve you there at the front door? Yes, sir. And who was that? Officer Ray Clark. So is he with the Rowlett Police Department again? Yes, sir. Okay. So whatever entries after that time would have been made by Officer Clark, right? Yes, sir. And was a running log made during the entire time the Rowlett Police Department had possession of this house? Yes, sir. Okay. I want to take you back to after 7.15 a.m. Now, did you leave 5801 Eagle or did you stay there? I stayed there. And just tell us what you started doing after you left the front door then. I was posted on the perimeter of the residence on the crime scene taped area. All right. Did you have occasion to talk with certain neighbors? out there. Yes, I did. All right. Did you have occasion to talk with an individual identified to you as Julie Hightower? Yes, sir. Is that a woman that lived on Willowbrook? Yes, sir. What was the purpose of you talking to Julie Hightower? At that time, I was posted at the alley way behind 5801 Eagle, and I was instructed to stop any vehicle that came out of the alley and make contact with the resident 
or whoever was in the vehicle. What was the purpose of talking with them? Just to ask them if they had heard or seen anything in the area that night that appeared to be suspicious or out of place. Okay, so you talked to Julie Hightower. Was she able to give you any information? No, she was not. Did you also talk to an individual by the name of Eileen Shermer? Yes, sir. Is she a neighbor also of the Routiers in that neighborhood? Yes, sir. Okay. Was she able to give you any information about what might have happened in there? No, she was not. While you were talking with her, did you discuss the Routier's financial situation? Yes, sir. Did she give you any information? She brought the subject up. At this point, Mr. Douglas Mulder says, Judge, we are going to object to anything that was said. The court then says, sustained. Mr. Davis then continues, Do you recall about what time it was that you talked to Eileen Shermer? It was approximately 8.30 a.m. Besides Julie Hightower and Eileen Shermer, do you recall speaking with any other neighbors out there that morning? No, sir. Officer Ferry, how long did you remain out there at that location? I left... I'm not sure of the exact time, but I left sometime in the early morning. Okay, we've indicated that you made a portion or you began the actual crime log or crime scene log, right? Yes, sir. And did you also prepare a handwritten report of your activities out there that day? Yes, sir, I did. Let me just show you the two pages here that have been marked for identification purposes as States Exhibit 34-C. Do you recognize those to be copies of the report that you prepared concerning your activities on June 6, 1996? Yes, sir. Is that the only report that you prepared in this case? Yes, sir. Typed or handwritten? That's correct. The court then says, what was that number? Mr. Davis says, that was 34-C, your honor. The court then says, all right. Mr. Greg Davis then continues, Officer Ferry, prior to coming here to Kerrville, have you and I had a chance to talk about your involvement in this case? Yes. Do you recall how many times that you spoke with me about your activities out there that day? Two times. Okay. Do you recall where the first meeting took place? It was in the Dallas County District Attorney's Office. All right. Upstairs in the courthouse? Yes, sir. Okay. Did you come to my office? Yes, sir. I did. All right. And did you and I discuss your report and what you had done? Yes, sir. Where did that second meeting take place? Here in this courtroom or in this building? All right. And you got into town, what, Sunday night? Yes, sir. Been here all week? Yes. How many times during the week have you and I spoken about your testimony, your reports, or anything else concerning this case? Once. When did that take place? Today. Let me just ask you, have you ever had occasion to come to the courthouse where I asked you and several other officers to come to a courtroom? Yes, sir. And did you, in fact, do that for me? Yes, sir. Okay. And during that time, did you, 
Did I ask you to get on the witness stand and tell me what you knew about the case? Yes, sir. And did you do that? Yes, I did. Okay, so you met with me in Dallas, you told me, and you met with, with me once in Kerrville. Is that right? Yes, sir. And States Exhibit 34-B, the log, and States Exhibit 34-C, the investigative supplement report, those are the only handwritten reports or typed reports or otherwise that you prepared in this case. Is that right? Yes, sir. Your Honor, I'll tender States Exhibits 34-B and 34-C to counsel, and I'll pass the witness for cross-examination. The court then says, yes, sir. At this point, uh, Mr. Douglas Mulder begins his cross-examination. Officer Ferry, I guess for a veteran police officer like you, nothing unusual about meeting with the district attorney, is there? No. Okay, I mean, that would be standard procedure, I imagine, before you testify, right? Yes, sir. Do you recall when Mr. Davis asked you how many times you had met with him? Yes, sir. And you told the jury here just moments ago that you had met with him twice, didn't you? Yes, sir. You said, quote, once in his office. Is that right? Yes, sir. And once down here in Kerrville. Yes, sir. Okay, you didn't tell him about the meeting in the courtroom there in Dallas County Courthouse, did you? That was the meeting in Dallas that I was referring to. In the district attorney's office? Yes, sir. Well, the district attorney's office doesn't have a courtroom in it, does it? Well, I consider that whole building that has a courtroom and an office in it. Well, you consider that whole building the district attorney's office? Yes, sir. Okay, even though it occupies but a small portion of the courthouse? Yes, sir. Most everybody else calls it the courthouse, don't they? I don't know what everybody else calls it. But you didn't mean to overlook the little dress rehearsal that y'all had in Dallas, did you? That's what I was referring to when I met in Dallas. When you told the jury that you met in the district attorney's office, you were referring to the deal where y'all went down and got on the witness stand in the courtroom. Yes, sir. Okay. And I guess they should have been able to figure that out, shouldn't they? Mr. Greg Davison says, I'll object to sidebar there. The court says sustained. Mr. Mulder then continues. Well, that was a question directed at Mr. Greg Davis then says, I'll object again to sidebar. The court says, thank you. Sustained. Mr. Mulder then continues. You had a judge down there for that, didn't you? No, sir. No one played the part of the judge. Somebody played the part of a judge. There was not a judge there. Okay, somebody played the part of a defense lawyer. Yes, sir. Okay, and y'all basically sat there in the courtroom and listened to what everybody else testified to, didn't you? Yes, sir. Okay, now I guess it helps you be consistent with one another, does it not? Sure, yes, sir. Okay, now your story today is that you went down the alley there behind the Routier house there in Rowlett. Yes, sir. About how long did you and Sergeant Ward search that alley? Approximately 45 minutes. Okay. 
and he had the side the sock was on, I take it. No, sir. You had the side the sock was on? Yes, sir. Okay. So you were the one who actually found the sock? No, sir. Okay. Is there any reason for him to be poaching on your area? Yes, sir. He was on the west side of the alleyway and I was on the east side. He was approximately one house in front of me when he was coming out of the driveway of one of the houses. He had searched. He came across and noticed the sock before I arrived at it. Okay, so he was actually searching both sides of the alleyway? No, sir. Okay, just in that one occasion, he searched that side. He located the sock first, and once he located it, he went over there to inspect it. Okay, now have you reviewed his report? No, sir. Do you have any idea why he would put in his report... Mr. Greg Davis then says, I'll object to this as being hearsay at this point. The court says sustained. Mr. Mulder then continues and says, you're telling us that Officer Moyne is the one who actually retrieved the sock. Officer Maine? Maine. Yes, he was called over there for a crime scene of the sock. It wasn't Beddingfield, was it? Well, Officer Maine and Beddingfield both arrived, and Officer Maine was the one who took custody of it. Okay, so Beddingfield and Maine were both there now. Is that right? Yes, sir. They were later called. Okay, so the sock was actually released to the custody of both Maine and Beddingfield? Well, I know that the sock was released to Officer Maine. But Beddingfield was there as well? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, when you went down the alley, did you look in the trash containers? Yes, sir. Did you dump them out? No, sir. Well, you just took the top off and shined a flashlight down in there? Well, I recall looking into one trash can that was on the side of a house. Okay. There are trash cans up and down that alley on both sides, aren't there? I only remember two being out at the time. You only saw two out? That's what I remember. Only two out. Okay. And one apparently was there by the sock. Yes, sir. Okay. Did you see any knives? No, sir. I did not. Did you ever see Sergeant Ward search any of the trash cans? I saw Sergeant Ward open the trash can by the sock And I saw him rip open a bag that was further down the alley. Okay, did he ever dump any of the contents out of the trash containers? Out of the one next to the sock? Yes. Not that I recall. Okay, and did he, on down the alley, did he dump out the trash containers? I didn't ever see him actually look inside any trash containers. Okay, except the one by the sock. Well, I can't say that he did, and I can't say that he didn't. I specifically saw him rip open a bag as I was passing him down the alleyway. Okay. And the one next to the sock, he opened up the top of it. Did you look into the backyards? Yes, sir. Okay. And were the gates, did you actually walk into the backyards? No, sir, I didn't. All right. 
They're a six foot fence, I suspect. Yes, sir. Okay, so about how tall are you? Approximately 5'10", 5'11". Okay, so they would be over your head then, wouldn't they? Yes, sir. The only way, I guess, that you're going to be able to look into the backyard, you're going to have to stand on one of the cross members of the fence and stand on that and shine the flashlight over like that. Is that right? Well, that's correct. There's also gas mains and utility boxes that I was using to peek over fences. Would you stand on them? Yes, sir. All right. And that's the way you searched the backyards? Yes, sir. Okay. Sort of peeked over the fence and eyeballed it with a flashlight? Yes, sir. Okay. And about how many of those did you do, Officer Ferry? I did all of the houses on the east side of Eagle Drive. I'm not sure exactly how many houses are over there. Okay, what were you looking for? Evidence. I mean, what was your idea of evidence at that time? Anything that appeared to be out of place. Okay, so, and you're telling us that in all of the backyards that you looked in, you didn't look in any of the trash cans or you looked in one. There's one there that I recall looking inside of next to a house. But you're saying that all of the backyards you looked into and all of the trash cans or the one trash can you looked in, you didn't see anything unusual? That's correct. Okay. And I guess the only thing Sergeant Ward saw was the sock. Is that right? Well, that you know of. I couldn't tell you that. I don't know exactly what he saw on his side of the street. Okay, now, where that sock was found, right across the alley from that, is a white metal fence. Is it not? Yes, sir. Okay, and one that you can see through the bars that are some five, six, eight inches apart. Are they not? Yes, sir. Did Sergeant Ward indicate to you that he saw some knives back there? No, sir. He didn't? No, sir. Not at that time in the alley. When you looked at that particular fence, that's unusual because that was the only one like that up and down the alley, wasn't it? Well, I didn't think it was unusual. That was the only wrought iron fence that I believe was over there, though. Yeah, the only wrought iron fence up and down the alley, though. Isn't that correct? Yes, sir. Everything else is wood? I believe so. So it was unusual to that respect, I guess. Yes. Okay, but Sergeant Ward didn't say anything about seeing some knives there or anything of that nature? Not at that time when I was in the alleyway with him. No. Okay. I guess this is sort of a subjective test that y'all, I mean, what may look unusual to you may not look unusual to Sergeant Ward. Is that fair to say? No, I wouldn't say that. Oh, you wouldn't say that. Okay. Now, why is it that you post guards on a crime scene? To protect the crime scene from any type of contamination from anybody walking inside and... You mean police officers when they even trained police officers will contaminate a crime scene? I don't know about that. Well, I mean, why didn't you just keep the civilians out and let the police officers go in? Well, you know full well that the reason that's done 
is because police officers contaminate crime scenes, don't they? I guess that's possible. They could. Well, sure it is. Have you been to, you've been to murder scenes before, haven't you? No, sir. You've never been to a murder scene before. No, sir. How long have you been on the police force? Eight years. I've been a police officer for about five years and worked in dispatch for approximately three. Well, you know, when they get to a crime scene, frequently officers will want to get a drink of water and use the bathroom or something like that's not unusual, is it? In the house? Yes, sir. I would think that would be. Well, that's why you post a guard there so that doesn't happen. Isn't that right? Well, you don't want everybody walking into that scene that doesn't have any business being in that scene. That's right, because it's not unusual to handle evidence, is it, for anyone? I mean, it's a common, it's just a common curiosity that people have. And that's what you are there to prevent, isn't it? I would say it would be unusual for people just to pick up evidence. Okay, all right. So it's just good precaution, but probably not necessary as long as police officers are there. Is that right? As long as the police officers are the ones going in. Well, you don't want every police officer that doesn't have any business being in that house to go in there either. That's because they'll contaminate the scene, isn't it? Track around, kick evidence around. Not necessarily, but it's just to keep everybody out handle things? That's possible that they could handle things. I may have misinterpreted what you said when I wrote this down, but I thought you said that civilian cron, officers, main, neighbors, and walling entered the, did they just enter the taped area at 603? Yes, sir. And then they went on into the house at 611. Yes, sir. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Okay. So what did they do? Just kind of walk around the front yard? They remained in the front yard. I believe they were discussing what they were going to do inside the residence. I don't know. Okay. And then the same thing with Miss Price from the medical examiner's office. She entered inside the perimeter and then went into the house a short time later. Yes, sir. You had nothing further to do with this case after 7.15 on the 6th of June. Occasionally, I was posted on the crime scene guard again days later, but you collected no evidence though. No, sir. Is that fair to say? That's correct. Okay. Stays exhibit number 34. These are all of your notes? Yes, sir. That's going to be my entries and Officer Ray Clark's entries. All right. So after 7.15, I take it, is it going to be Clark? Yes, sir. Okay. Mr. Mulder then says, I believe that's all. Thank you, Officer Ferry. Mr. Greg Davis says, no further questions, Your Honor. The court then says, all right, you may step, step down, Officer. Thank you. Next up, we have the testimony of Jack Colby, who is a or was a paramedic firefighter who, along with Brian Koshak, was in the first ambulance to arrive at the scene. And again, it begins with Mr. Greg Davis. All right, please tell us your full name. Jack Colby, 
K-O-L-B-Y-E. All right, Mr. Colby, how are you employed by the Rowlett Fire Department? All right. And how long have you been with the Rowlett Fire Department? Seven and a half years. Okay, so you're a firefighter, correct? I'm a firefighter slash paramedic. All right, a paramedic also. Yes, sir. How long have you been a paramedic? Since 1983. So that's 13 years as a paramedic. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Have you ever testified before a jury, before Mr. Colby? No, I have not. All right. If you would, if you'll just keep your voice up so that the last jurors down here can hear you, I would appreciate it. Okay? Okay. Okay. How much training do you go through to become a firefighter? The firefighter training was about three months long, various activities. I'm not sure what the hours are on that. All right. Is there additional training that you need to undergo to become a paramedic? Yes, there is. All right. Can you tell us the type of training that you go through to become a paramedic? A prerequisite uh, would be to be an emergency medical technician That's 160 hours of advanced first aid training and paramedic training is built off of that. It's 300 hours of classroom training followed by 160 hours of clinical hospital rotations, 240 hours of ride outs on an ambulance with another paramedic. Okay, the folks that teach you there to become a paramedic are some of them doctors? Yes, they are. How about nurses? The coordinator of the class that I took was a registered nurse that had a lot of experience in intensive care. Okay, how about other paramedics as instructors? Yes, there are. Mr. Colby, let me direct your attention back to June the 5th of 1996 and ask you whether or not you were scheduled to work on June the 5th. Yes, I was. On June 5th, I reported at 7 o'clock in the morning. Okay. And when you work as a firefighter, what kinds of shifts do you work? 24 hours on at the station and 48 hours off. All right. So you were scheduled to work from 7 in the morning on June the 5th to 7 in the morning on June 6th. Is that correct? That's correct. And where was your fire station located out there in Roulette? 5100 Dalrock. Would that be just south of 66? That's correct. Who else was on duty with you at that fire station? Do you recall the names? A paramedic Brian Koshak was on the ambulance with me. Our captain was Dennis Vrana. It was Rick Coleman, Mike Youngblood. I can't recall anybody else. I think that was the shift. And you mentioned Brian Koshak. He was working the ambulance with you that day or that morning? Yes, he was. Now let's go forward a little bit to June the 6th, 1996, about 2.30 in the morning. Were all of y'all at the station at that time? Yes, sir, we were. Were you sleeping? Yes, Sometime near 2.30 in the morning, did a call come into the fire station out there? Yes, it did. All right. And what was the nature of the call? 
the nature of the call that came in as a medical emergency. All right. And what could that mean? Does that encompass a lot of different possibilities? That's just a generic call for the fact that somebody is going to need some medical help. All right. Did you and Brian Koshak then get into the ambulance and start to leave the station? That's correct. Did you have a destination that you were heading to? A 5801 Eagle. All right. Before you got to Eagle Drive, did the call change a little bit from just a medical emergency to something else? Yes. The dispatcher came on later and said that this would be a possible stabbing. All right. And did it take you long to get to 5801 Eagle? From the time the call came in, it was within five minutes. Okay. When you got there to the house, did you see any other emergency personnel? And by that, I mean fire engines, ambulances, or police cars. Yes, there was a police car already there when we arrived, and there was another one behind us. All right. And were y'all the first ambulance, though, to arrive at the scene? That's correct. This other car that was coming in with you, do you know who was driving that car? That would have been Officer Matt Walling. And when you and Koshak actually got parked there at the residence, did y'all immediately get out and go into the house? No, we didn't. We stayed inside because it was a possible stabbing waiting for the police to let us know that the scene would be clear. Okay, so you were going to wait on some police officer to actually come out and tell you it was okay to come in, right? That or the dispatcher. Yes, sir. All right. Do you know how long that you and Koshak waited out in the ambulance before someone actually gave you the word that it was okay to go in and start treating? Less than two minutes. All right. And who was it that actually told you it was okay for y'all to go in? Officer Walling. All right. And did both you and Brian Koshak get out of the ambulance at that point and start to go into the house? Brian got on the radio and called for additional help. And I grabbed the medical kits and I proceeded in. After he made the call for additional help, he followed me in. So you say that you had a medical kit with you. Do you have a lot of equipment in that kit? It's just basic stuff. It's stuff that will just get us by inside the house until we get somebody back outside into the ambulance. Okay. And did you go in the front door of the house? Yes, I did. And did you go anywhere in particular once you got inside the house? I walked through the front door, through an entryway, and into a living area, a living slash den area, I suppose you would call it. Okay, let me just show you Stace Exhibit number 10, which is a floor plan of the house. Are you familiar with the layout of the house? Yes, I am. This being the front door right here. Yes, sir. When you talk about the family room, are you talking about the family room labeled on the diagram there? That is correct. Okay. And when you came into that room, Mr. Colby, can you tell us whether or not anyone else was in there at that time? When I walked in, I noticed police officer Waddell, a female and another male. All right. So you noticed the police officer, 
Is that right? I'm sorry? Did you notice a police officer? Yes, sir, I did. Do you know what his name was? That would be Officer Waddell. Okay, so you've got Officer Waddell, then you've got a female, and you've got a male. Is that right? That's correct. Do you recall where in that family room that Officer Waddell was? He was standing between or near where the living room and the kitchen would meet. Okay, is there a, a some sort of bar or counter that separates the kitchen and the living area? Yes, there was. He was standing in front of that. Okay, on the kitchen side or on the family side? On the family side. All right. How about the female? Where was she when you came into the room? She was standing next to him. All right. And do you recall whether or not she was standing up or sitting down or what in particular that she was doing at that time? She was standing up. All right. By Officer Waddell? Yes, sir. Okay. How about the other male that you saw in the room? Where was he? He was in the, I suppose you call it the middle of the living area. All right. Middle of the room then, right? That's correct. He's not over with Officer Waddell and the female? No, he's not. The female that you saw that morning, do you see her in the courtroom today? Yes, sir, I do. Okay, is she the lady down here with the pen and the notepad in front of her? Yes, sir. Your Honor, may the record please reflect that this witness has identified the defendant in open court, and the court says, yes, sir. Mr. Greg Davis then continues. Now, did you come to know the female to be Darley Routier? Yes, sir, that's correct. Tell us, what was the defendant doing when you first saw her? She was standing next to Officer Waddell. She was holding a towel on her neck. All right. Where did you go in the room? As soon as I entered the room, I looked at Officer Waddell. He gave me a nod indicating a direction that I looked in. And there I saw a small child laying on the floor. Okay. Where was he in the room? Just to my left as I walked in. Okay, so you just go into the family room and he's right there on your left. Is that right? That's correct. How was he positioned? Was he on the floor? He was lying face down on the floor. And what did you do? I walked over to the child and examined his back backside briefly for any injuries and I rolled him over. Do you recall how he was clothed? He had on a dark t-shirt and blue jeans. You say that when you examined his back, let me ask you, was there any kind of a rag or towel or anything else on top of that child? No, there was not. Are you sure about that? I'm absolutely sure about that. Okay. He's got on blue jeans and he's got on a black shirt, right? That's correct. You say that you turned him over. Is that right? I rolled him over. Yes, sir. Okay. And what, if anything, occurred when you rolled the child over? He gasped for a gasp of air, and that was the final time that he breathed. When he gasped, did you notice whether or not his eyes were open? Yes, sir. His eyes were open, and there were still a light of life in those eyes. 
Did you ever see that light go out of his eyes? Yes, sir. As I was with the child, it slowly faded. All right. How long did you remain inside the residence with the child? About two minutes. Okay. And at some point then, did you move him out to your ambulance? Yes, sir. I picked him up and carried him out to the ambulance. What was the purpose of moving him out to the ambulance? I looked up and could tell my partner was going to be busy, that he wasn't going to be able to assist me. There was some commotion and chaos in the house. But more than anything, that's where the advanced life support that I would need would be in the ambulance. I really wanted to get him hooked up to an EKG monitor as soon as possible. Okay, this photograph that's out here states exhibit 9-A. Do you recognize this to be the child that you found inside, face down, that you moved to the ambulance? Yes, sir, that's him. Okay, what was his condition at the time that you started to move him out to the ambulance? He was not breathing. There was no pulse. Okay, I'm interested in the actual movement of him. How did you take him out to the ambulance? I carried him in my arms. His back, he was face up in my arms. Okay, was he bleeding as you took him out? No, he was not. Okay, were you getting a lot of blood on you as you carried him out? No, I was not. Actually, when I stopped and opened the back of the ambulance, I had to prop him up on my chest with my knee to free an arm to open it. And I had very little blood on me. What would have rubbed off of, of his clothes onto me. And once you took him out to your ambulance, what did you do with him? I continued CPR, which I had started in the house before I carried him out Shortly after that time, the engine company arrived. Paramedic Coleman, I could see, was available, so I asked him to come and assist me. And did he? Yes, he did. Okay. Did you and paramedic Coleman continue working on Damon there in the ambulance? Yes, we did. I continued to do chest compressions for the CPR. Coleman took over the respiratory efforts and made preparations to intubate the child. When you talk about intubate, are you talking about putting a tube down him to help him breathe? Yes, sir. There's various sized tubes that we call endotracheal tubes, and they go past the mouth into the trachea or the windpipe, and it gives us a better seal for making respiratory efforts. Okay, all right. And at some point, did you transport Damon to the hospital? Yes, we did. We stayed in the back of the ambulance approximately 15 minutes, continuing on with the advanced life support before we transported him. Let me ask you a question. You were in the house for a very short period of time with him. Is that right? That's correct. You were then in the ambulance with him for, what, about 15 minutes before you started going to the hospital, right? That's correct. And how long did it take you to get to the hospital with him? It would have been maybe another 15 minutes. Okay, what hospital did you take him to? Baylor of Dallas. En route to the hospital, did you and paramedic Coleman continue working on the child? That's correct. En route to the hospital, I actually started an IV in the jugular vein that we had not been able to accomplish before. 
and we pushed a drug, epinephrine, uh, which is a cardiac drug, and continued CPR. Okay, did Damon show any response to your treatment? No, he did not. By the time you got down to Baylor with him, what was his condition? It had not changed any. Still no pulse, still no pulse, no respiration. And I assume that you got down there at the Baylor personnel, then took over the treatment or attempted treatment of Damon. Is that right? Yes, sir. We took him into one of the rooms, their larger room, their trauma room, and turned him over to the staff there. Okay. How long did you and paramedic Coleman remain there at the hospital? Any idea? It took us a little while to regroup, uh, probably about an hour. Okay. Have you ever dealt with a situation quite like this before? No, sir. Nothing like this. While you were in the house there at 5801 Eagle Drive, did you ever have occasion to go up to the defendant to talk with her, to look at her, to do anything with her? No, sir, I did not. You ever have any occasion to attempt to treat her, assess her wounds, touch her clothing, anything of that order? No, sir, I did not. Would it be fair to say that your entire focus was on Damon? Yes, it was. Was, were there other paramedics who began attending to the defendant while you tried to assist Damon? Yes, there was. Uh, Brian Koshak, the partner that I wrote in on, had been left behind in the room, and he, as I understood it, took care of her from that point on. Okay, let me ask you a little bit about the CPR. You've been performing CPR how long now? I took my first class probably 1977. I've been a CPR instructor for the past five years. I have been doing CPR as a paramedic 13 or 14 years. Okay, paramedic Colby, this child was face down on the floor, right? That is correct. Do you know of any way to perform CPR on a child or any other person who is face down? No, there is no way. Okay, what would you need to do to that child in order to perform CPR? You would have to roll him over on his back. Okay, like you did? Yes, sir. Now, if let's assume that a child such as Damon is face down and is bleeding from the back. Okay, yes, sir. And let's assume that a person who is not a paramedic, not trained in the medical field like you are, is instructed to assist that person or render first aid of some order to that person, what would be the proper instruction to give to that individual in your opinion? For somebody that is not trained in CPR? Right. What's the thing they ought to do for that child? They should find something that is going to be absorbent, apply pressure to those wounds to stop the bleeding. Like go look for a rag and place a rag on the boy's back and apply pressure to stop the bleeding. That would be correct. I have one additional question about your activities out there that morning. I know you're not in the house very long. Are you? No, sir. Okay. Did you ever see a civilian female come into the house to that family room while you were there? No, I did not. Anybody identified as Karen Neal 
ever come into that room while you were inside the residence attending to Damon? No. Let me ask you, prior to your testimony today, you and I have talked about your testimony, haven't we? Yes, we have. Okay. And we have talked before we came to Kerrville. Is that right? That's correct. Do you remember about the number of times that you and I have talked about what you did out there that morning while we were in Dallas? Four times. Okay. Did you come down to the courthouse at one point in Dallas? Yes. Yes, sir, I did. Did you come to the courtroom where other police officers and paramedics were? Yes, sir. All right. And did I ask you to get up on the witness stand and tell me what you just told this jury? Yes, sir, you did. Did I also come out to the, I believe it was the Rowlett Police Department, wasn't it, where we met for the first time? The first time, yes, sir. Okay, and we may have met other times in Dallas in addition to that, correct? Correct, okay. And you've been in Kerrville now since what, Monday night? I came in Monday night, all right. And did I ask you to come over? I'm losing track. Was it either Tuesday or Wednesday night? Did I ask you to come to my room for a few minutes so we could go over your testimony again? I believe it was Tuesday night. Okay, is that the only meeting we've had while we're here in Kerrville to discuss your testimony? Yes, sir. Let me ask you whether you prepared any reports concerning your activities out there, run sheets or any other items? Yes, sir, I did. All right, paramedic Colby, let me ask you if you would to look at States Exhibit 20-D. Is that a report that you prepared? That's, or did someone else prepare that? This is the report for my run that I made. The report was actually filled out by Rick Coleman. I discussed it with him, what needed to be put on here. He's the one that actually filled it out. Okay, so you gave him the information and he actually made the writing. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. In addition to the report, States Exhibit 20-D, did you also, at the request of the Rowlett Police Department, give an affidavit concerning what occurred out there at the residence that night? Yes, I did. And did they also ask you to make a drawing about where people were at the time that you came into the house? Yes, they did. The children? Yes, they did. All right. And that's States Exhibit 20-G. Is that right? Yes, sir. All right. Let me ask you also, paramedic Colby, if you've already at some point last year, I believe it was in uh, September, already been cross-examined by an attorney representing the defendant? Yes, sir. Okay. And did you answer his questions that day? Yes, I did. Okay. And there was a transcript made of that. Is that right? That's correct. And that attorney's name was, well, let me just ask you, was it one of the five attorneys sitting over here with Mrs. Routier today? I do not recognize any of them. All right. Do you recognize the attorney's name, Douglas Parks? Yes, sir, I do. Okay. And so he's the one that already questioned you and cross-examined you. Is that right? That's correct. Your Honor, at this time, I will tender States Exhibits 20-G and 20-D to counsel, and I'll pass this witness for cross-examination. The court then says, Mr. Mosty, 
At this point, Mr. Mosty says, yes, sir. The court says, all right, sir. Mr. Mosty says, may I have a moment? The court says, you may indeed. 10-minute break? And Mr. Mosty says, sure. And the court says, okay, 10-minute break. After the 10-minute break, everybody's back in the room and the testimony or cross-examination begins with Mr. Richard Mosty. Mr. Colby, I just want to cover a few things with you. Do you know, just through your dealings with, do you know the Rowlett Police Department officers? Just as a course through work, through work, I mean, yes. I mean, for instance, you know who Walling is, or when you saw him, you knew who that was? Yes, sir. And Waddell as well? That's correct. If I understand, you are in route... How far is the station from this house? Two to three miles. Okay. It's very close. All right. And were you there within just a few minutes? That's correct. Okay. And as a matter of fact, you were there in front of Walling. That is correct. You weren't driving, were you? Yes, sir, I was. You were driving. Did you notice at some point that Walling was behind you with his lights on? Yes, sir. Okay, and then, of course, you noticed when he pulled up behind you. Actually, he pulled up and around, around me. Where did you park? I parked on the north side of the house. Okay, as close as you could quickly determine was the front of the house? That's correct. Okay, and he came around you? Yes, sir, he did. I'm saying to my right. Is that right? Yes, sir, that's correct. To the right. Yes, sir. You parked on the wrong side of the street then. That's what I did. Yes, sir. All right. Then did Walling say anything to you when he exited the vehicle? No, he did not. Did he make any motions to you or anything? No, he did not. None that I saw. Okay. Where did Walling park? It would have been in an alley just off the street, the best I, that I remember. So are you pretty much directly in front of the house? No, sir, I'm not. If you were standing in front of the house, I'm to the right. Okay. Standing in front of the house, looking at the house. Okay. I would be on your right. And you had come from, if I were standing facing the house, had you come from the left? That's correct. That was your point? Yes, sir. And so you sort of went past the front of the house. Yes, sir. Toward the right, if we're all looking at that house. Yes, sir. Okay. And then Walling came around you and farther on. That's correct. To the alley. Yes, sir. More or less. Yes, sir. Which side of the street did he park on? I don't recall. Was there another car at the scene? Yes, sir, there was. Where was it located? I know that I had passed it before I parked, but I couldn't tell you exact location. It was farther back toward the front of the house? That's correct. And I guess that it's standard procedure in that situation that you wait for an officer to give you the go-ahead to go in? Yes, that's correct. And were you able to observe Walling go into the residence? Yes, sir, I did. Did you exit the ambulance? You and your partner? Who's your partner? Koshak? 
Yes, sir. Brian Koshek. Did y'all exit your ambulance? At some point, yes, sir. Before Walling came back out? No, sir. Did you, was there some stuff you needed to do, for instance, equipment that you needed to be picking up while you are sitting in the ambulance? No, sir. We were sitting in the cab of the ambulance waiting for a clear to come to us to go inside the residence. And you had either on you or in your hands all of the tools or supplies that you needed. No, they are in compartments on the side of the ambulance. They are very quick and easy. It's very quick and easy. Just you open the compartment on the side of the ambulance and grab the kit that you need. Okay. And from the time, did you see Officer Walling head across and actually go in the house, head across the yard? I saw him go across the yard. I didn't actually see him go in the house. No. Okay. Did you see any other individuals out in the yard? No, I did not. Did Walling stop or do anything after he exited his vehicle? I wasn't really paying that much attention to him. What were you doing? I was sitting in the driver's seat. And I guess you, but you had a clear view of the front of the house, didn't you? It was an angle view of the front of the house. So you're sort of looking... Were you sort of looking straight ahead at Walling's car and sort of to your left at the front door? I couldn't actually see the front door. You could not? No, I could see the front of the house, but it wasn't a clear view of the front door. Okay. Was it sort of dark in front of the house? I don't recall it as being dark. Do you remember any lights? I don't remember what the lighting situation was like. Okay, well, how long do you think Walling was in the house? A minute and a half. Okay, and he came out. Did he say something to you or signal to you or what did he do? He came to the driver's side door. I rolled the window down and he said, you have two children inside. You're going to need some more help. Go on in. He said, you may have two children. I don't recall what his exact words were. Okay. The gist of that was call for more help. Yes, sir. Okay. And did you do that? Or your partner? Yes, my partner did. Okay. And where did Walling go? I do not know. And what did you do? That's when I got out of the ambulance and grabbed the medical kit and proceeded to go inside. Did you run to the front door? No, sir. I did not. You walked? Yes, sir. Probably at a pace? Yes, sir. At a brisk pace? And was Koshak right behind you? Yes, he was. Okay. And there wasn't any delay in him calling? He didn't stay behind to call? No, he didn't. He was coming in right behind you? That's correct. Okay. And when you came in, you observed Mrs. Routier? Yes, sir, I did. As you walked in the house? Well, once I entered into the living area, I observed her. Yes, sir. Okay. And instantaneously, you could tell that she was very distraught. Yes, sir. And you knew that, didn't you? She was holding a towel on her neck and there appeared to be quite a bit of blood there. Yes, sir. She was distraught. That was your word, wasn't it? Yes, sir, it was. Okay. 
Now then, you immediately turned your attention to the child, to the first child? Yes, I did. Okay. And who nodded in the direction of the child? Officer Waddell. How far was Waddell from that child? 10 or 12 feet. That far? That is my guess. Was he at the end of the bar or whereabouts? He was at the end of the bar. Yes, sir. Okay, let me show you away from the child. Let me show you this exhibit, which is a floor plan of the house. And I know that it wasn't your, you weren't focusing on the floor plan, but does that seem about like the floor plan of the part that you came in? The entry hall? Yes, sir. And a bar? That's correct. And was Waddell here at the end of this bar? No, sir. He was at the other end. At this far end? Yes, sir. Okay. Near the back wall? Yes, sir. Okay. And he nodded in what direction? Toward the direction of the child that was laying on the floor. Okay. To that point, had you seen the child? No, I had not. And as you got around that corner, could you clearly see the child? Yes, I could. And did you immediately go down to your knees, I guess, or how? Yes, sir, I did. Okay. Did you take out any bandages or equipment out of your kit? I removed what we call an ambu bag to do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. It has a mouthpiece on it and a bag reservoir that we use to put mouth-to-mouth resuscitation as opposed to doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And it comes, I guess, in a some kind of sterile packaging. Yes, it does. You tore that packaging open and cast it aside. Yes, sir, I did. Okay. And you also saw Mr. Routier, but as I understood it, you weren't clear he wasn't beside Waddell or Mrs. Routier? No, he was not. He was off, did you say, sort of in the middle of the living room? Is that how you said that? Yes, sir. Okay. And did you see anything else over in the middle of the living room in the area where Mr. Routier was? No, I couldn't see anything else. You did not see another child in there. No, I did not. Never saw another child. No, sir, I did not. Did you ever see what, did you ever see what Koshak did? No, sir, I did not. Okay. You weren't paying attention to what he was doing? No, sir. I guess it's fair to say that once you went down beside your, the person you were treating, that everything you did was focused on that child. Yes, sir. And how long would you say you were in that, there in the house with the child? About two minutes. Okay. And Mr. Routier, when you saw him, how would you describe him? He was excited? He was excited. Yes, sir. Okay. Was he distraught too? No, sir. I would describe him as being excited. Excited? Yes, sir. All right. And as you were there, and these children were both being attended to, there was a lot of screaming going on, wasn't there? There was. Okay. And crying. There was some screaming. Okay. And as a matter of fact, there was so much screaming and so much anguish that that was one of the reasons that you wanted to pick that child up and get him out of there, wasn't it? That was one of the reasons. Yes, sir. 
So with everything, with all of the commotion going on and the screaming and the anguish, you thought that you could do a do better for the child and do your job better if you picked the child up and got him out to the ambulance. Yes, sir. And for the people that were doing, I guess Waddell wasn't screaming, was he? No, sir, he was not. And Koshak wasn't screaming. No, sir. Was it Mrs. Routier doing the screaming? I don't recall her screaming. Who was screaming? Mr. Routier. And you don't recall Mrs. Routier screaming? Not a scream. No, sir. Okay. What did you think? What did you characterize what Mrs. Routier was doing? The words she was saying and the actions. If you didn't characterize it as screaming, how would you characterize it? She answered loudly. Is it your regular practice to write handwritten reports as quickly as you possibly can? Yes, sir. And you did this in this case on June 6th, did you not? That's correct. The same day? Yes, sir. And of course, that was your best recollection. Yes, sir. Of what had happened? That's correct. And it was very fresh on your mind at that point, wasn't it? That's correct. I mean, it was standing out. Yes, sir. But I guess when you go into a situation like that, there are some things that you just don't remember or that you just don't pay attention to. Yes, sir. And some things that you pay attention to. And so those are vivid in your memory. And other things you might miss. That's correct. But on June 6, 1996, when your memory was fresh, you said that both the male and the female, it seemed, were screaming didn't you? Well, I don't remember. You don't recall that. You'll be able to recognize your own handwriting, won't you? Certainly. Let me show you states what's been marked for record purposes as States Exhibit 20-6. I'm going to interrupt here for a second because this is a mistake in the actual transcription. It's 20-something. And if you would... Is that your handwriting? Yes, sir. And does it bear your signature at the bottom? Yes, it does. And is it so that it was subscribed and sworn to on the 6th day of June, 1996? Yes, sir. That's correct. Same day as this incident when this was freshest on your mind? That's correct. And isn't it true that in this statement, you, the way you described Mr. Mrs. Routier and Mr. Routier is as follows, quote, with both the male and male and female at the scene screaming, I decided to move the child to, is that M-I-C-U? Yes, sir. And that when your memory was the best was how you described what Mrs. Routier was doing. That's what it says on that report. Yes, sir. And so then that's accurate, isn't it? Yes, sir. She was screaming, wasn't she? Well, yes, sir. There is nothing that has happened between June 6th of 1996 and today that would change your mind about what you saw out there and what you heard out there. Is there? No, sir, there is not. And however many meetings you had with the DA, was it four? Yes, sir. That doesn't change what you knew to be the truth 
on June 6, 1996. Does it? No, it doesn't. Okay. And your best depiction, then, of what Mrs. Routier was doing was that she was screaming. The way you initially asked me the question, he was screaming louder than she was. Okay, okay. So, all right. I think I understand. Mr. Mosty then says, that's all I have. Pass the witness. Mr. Greg Davis says, no further questions. And the court then says, you may step down, sir. All right, everybody. So that's going to end it for these three witnesses. There are still two more to go on this day of testimony. But let's wrap up a little bit. I want to give you a few of my thoughts for what it's worth. Um, First of all, the testimony of Jack Colby was very difficult for me personally to get through, as I'm sure it was very difficult for you to listen to. But let's We'll get to that here in a second, but let's start with who we heard from first, and that was Officer Steve Wade. Now, he said that he was at the front door of the Routier home, and he was there at about 3.15 that morning. He was there to relieve David Waddell. They were kind of, you know, keeping guard over the front door, and he said that Sergeant Walling instructed him to go there. Now, Steve Wade's testimony was actually quite short and he didn't offer a whole lot of information except for that when it got to the cross-examination, I thought that it was interesting that when he's asked as to whether or not when him and all of the police officers got together to go over their testimony with the prosecution, He was asked by the defense, said, well, hey, were all of the police officers in the same room with you? And he said that, yes, they were all there. And they all got on the stand and they all testified as if they were in court, which means that all of the officers heard what everybody else was going to say in court. So let's move on to Steve Ferry. And he was the one who got to 5801 to the Routier home around four o'clock in the morning and met up with Sergeant Ward. He is also the one that went with Sergeant Ward uh, behind the alley, into the alley behind the Routier home to go up and down and look for any evidence. Now, Officer Ferry didn't retrieve personally any items. Although he did say that it was Sergeant Ward who had found the sock. And Officer Ferry then said that he saw it as well after he walked over. Officer Ferry also seemed to be very diligent at his job of keeping a crime log that named everybody who either came within the taped area around the Routier home or who walked into the house or out of the house. So I know that there's a lot of names that were covered with this uh, because there was a lot of activity, activity, excuse me, of people going in and out of the house while Officer Ferry was standing guard at the front door. Now, he said that at 6.03 a.m., Sergeant Walling Sergeant Neighbors, who 
is involved in the physical evidence uh, team. He's actually the supervisor of the physical evidence team at Rowlett. And Officer Main, who is also part of the physical evidence, along with James Cron, entered the taped area. So there's four of them, Walling, Neighbors, Main, and Cron, who come into the taped area. And this was at 6.03 in the morning. At 6.09, Karen Neal, the neighbor, along with David Main and Sergeant Walling, went into the house. Now, one thing I did find interesting was that for as diligent as Officer Ferry was in keeping track of who was coming in the taped area and who was going in and out of the house, he it was never mentioned in the testimony that Karen Neal, the neighbor, wasn't noted as coming into the taped off area before going into the house because she would have had to right? Otherwise, there's no way that she could have gotten inside. Karen then exited the home two minutes later at 6.11 a.m. and the others remained in the house. So the others being David Main and Sergeant Walling. So those two were still inside. Karen has left. At 6.11, James Cron and Sergeant Neighbors then enter the house. So this means there are now four people inside the Routier home at 6.11 in the morning. And this is Walling, this is Maine, this is Cron, and this is Neighbors. And evidently they were doing a, what they called a walkthrough. At 6.37 in the morning, Sergeant Neighbors, Sergeant Walling, and James Cron leave the house. This means that Officer Main is still inside the house. Now, Officer Main, remember, is part of the physical evidence team. But this was never kind of brought up. I just thought this was interesting. He's very detailed. Here's all of these people going in, coming out, coming in. You know, here's Main still inside the house. He then mentions that Robin Price, who is a field agent from the medical examiner's office then enters the taped area and at 6:59 in the morning robin price james cron sergeant neighbors and sergeant evans which is a new name that we haven't heard yet have now entered into the home so now inside the home officer main has still remained inside the house and now there are additional people. So it's Maine, Robin Price, the uh, person from the ME's office, James Cron, Sergeant Neighbors, and now Sergeant Evans. So there's five people now inside this house. I'm sure that we're going to find out in later testimony when they all left. But the thing is, is that Officer Ferry was relieved of his duty at 7.15 in the morning. So any notes, uh, he was relieved by Officer Ray Clark. So any notes that had begun with Officer Ferry uh, would then be continued by Officer Clark. So we'll hopefully get to that a little bit later on. A couple of other things that I thought was interesting while reading Steve Ferry's testimony was that uh, he said he and Sergeant Ward 
had actually searched the alley for about 45 minutes and that matched up. And if you remember in Officer Ward's testimony, when he went to go do his paperwork, he put down that the person who took custody of the sock was an officer betting field, not officer main. He did go back and he made that change. He had accidentally put in Beddingfield. Now, Beddingfield was there, but he did not take custody of the sock. And Steve Ferry, when he was on the stand, said that, yes, it was, in fact, Officer Maine who took custody of the sock, not Beddingfield. Officer Ferry further said that he saw Sergeant Ward open the trash can by the sock and he opened a bag from a trash can that was further down the alley. But as far as the trash can that was by the sock, if you remember, it was supposed to have been filled with grass clippings or something like that. Although it wasn't uh, stated if it was bagged or if it was just loose or whatever. But Steve Ferry, Officer Ferry, says that he does not recall seeing Sergeant Ward dump that trash can next to to the sock, uh, but he did look inside of it. He also said that Sergeant Ward never said anything to him, being Officer Ferry, about finding knives in the backyard of the home in the alley. According to Officer Ferry, quote, not in the alley, which maybe indicates that he later said something to him after they had left the alley about the knives being there. Um, it just so happens that Gustavo's home, where the knives were found in the backyard, it was the only house in the alleyway behind the routiers that had a wrought iron fence that you could see through. It wasn't a tall wooden fence like all the other yards. Uh, Steve Ferry said he personally never collected any evidence, but I did find that really interesting about this whole conversation about the knives in the backyard of the uh, Guzman home. And lastly, I'm just going to touch a little bit on the Jack Colby testimony. Um, it's a very, very compelling testimony. And essentially he just walks us through what it is that he had to do at the, at the crime scene. Although one thing that I did, <sighs> find intriguing, I guess was a way to say it, is that when Jack Colby walked into the residence and he began to walk towards the room where the children were, um, he noticed that Officer Waddell and Darley were standing next to one another at the bar. And this bar separates the kitchen from the family room and Darley was holding a towel to her neck. He did say that Darley appeared to be distraught and Waddell was about 10 to 12 feet away from the child. Now, when he first gave this testimony, I'm thinking, okay, he's standing, you know, they're both standing right there at the end of the bar. So it's like, if you were to walk into the entryway to this family room, they would be right there and the bar would be either directly next to them or right behind them. But no, they were standing all the way at the other end of this bar next to the rear of the house. 
So just to put this in perspective, if you're looking at a top-down image of the this area, you would see the kitchen on the right and the living room or den on the left. Now between these two rooms is a counter or a bar that is basically an extension of the kitchen counter, but it turns the corner and separates the two rooms. It only runs about halfway across the length of both the family room and the kitchen. So if you were to stand at the back of this counter on the living room side, you would, like I said, literally be right next to the back wall of the house. Now, Jack Colby then says that he saw the other male, which would be Darren, in the middle of the family room, but he did not notice another child. He just sees Darren. Now, he has never asked, though, what Darren is doing. He describes Darren as being excited and not distraught. I would have personally liked to hear what Jack's definition of excited meant as opposed to distraught, because we can all have our own definitions of what that word might mean. Jack did say that when he walked in, he noticed Waddell and Waddell just gave him a nod to point to where the child was. It's like he didn't even want to be anywhere near this child. And I don't know if this is going to be brought up later or not. As I've always said, this is the very first time I am personally reading through all of these transcripts. But when Colby got into, uh, Jack Colby, the paramedic, got into the room, he used what is called an ambu bag. And this is often used when someone is in respiratory distress. Now, it's mentioned that he had to remove this, this device from its sterile packaging, and then he just tossed this packaging aside. And the reason I bring this up is that because... I have a feeling, I might be totally wrong on this, but I have a feeling that this packaging is going to be part of, hopefully, what they still find within the crime scene. I think that somehow this might actually be brought up. Like I said, I might be wrong, but I thought it was interesting that they had even mentioned this at all. And as I'm going through Jack's testimony and listening to it and then making notes, um, he had mentioned that the reason that he had picked up Damon uh, to take him, uh, he'd only been with Damon inside the house for about two minutes, and he decided to pick him up and carry him outside to the ambulance. Uh, his partner was also in the house, but he was not able to assist him because of some commotion or chaos. Now, I'm not sure what exactly this was. It might have been that Jack did say that there was so much screaming that he wanted to get the child outside to the ambulance. Later, he mentions that it was Darren who was screaming. In his report, however, that he wrote that same day, when once this was all over, his portion of it was all over, he mentions that both Darren and Darley were screaming. It wasn't just Darren by himself. And just two more things regarding Jack Colby. The thing that struck me was that the prosecuting attorney, when he was asking him questions, begins to talk about what someone should do 
if they aren't trained in CPR to help the child. But he phrases it like this, and this is verbatim, quote, let's assume that someone is instructed to perform CPR or render first aid to that person. What would be the proper instruction to give to that individual in your opinion? And Jack responds with, well, they should find something absorbent and apply pressure to stop the bleeding. Now, although this statement or this question from the prosecutor does start with the word assume, it's apparent that he's using Colby to make it out as if Darley was instructed to aid Damon in a particular way which I don't believe she was. I'm going to have to double check this, but I'm pretty sure that the only time that this has ever been mentioned about her being instructed to do something like that was from David Waddell, who was in the residence the entire time. Remember, he was the first one on the scene. However, almost this entire time, Darley is on the phone with 911, so everything is being recorded in the background, and you never hear Waddell say this to Darley. Jack is also asked if the um, if any other female, namely Karen Neal, was in the house in there while he was in there, and he said that no, there was not. And then finally, he's asked about being questioned by one of the defense attorneys, but it wasn't one of the ones that Darley has while she's on trial this day. It was actually her original attorney, Douglas Parks, who was replaced, who had initially questioned Jack Colby prior to Darley's trial. So I'm just kind of putting that out there for what it's worth. I'm sure the prosecution brought it up for a certain reason, and we'll probably find out what that reason is a little bit later on. At least that's what I'm guessing. Now, we are still on January 10th of 1997, and there are still two more people to testify. And these are Brian Koshak, which is who worked with or works with Jack Colby. He was the other paramedic that came along. And the last one on this day is a gentleman by the name of Larry Byford. And Larry is also a paramedic who, along with Eric Zimmerman, was in the second ambulance to arrive at the scene. So their two testimonies are coming up in the next podcast episode, which should be coming out very, very soon. I kind of want to get this day all wrapped up so we can begin to move on. So anyway, thank you as always. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you appreciate these. Uh, I hope it's informative for you. Uh, Maybe you're learning something new. I know that I am. And we will, uh, I'll be back very shortly with more testimony on the Darley Routier trial. So stay tuned.